faith is a mystery of the heart that our intellect wants to solve. Those are the words of Clayton Schmidt, a very good biblical scholar. And I agree with his idea. Faith is a mystery of the heart that our intellect, our minds, wants to solve. We modern-day folks are full of rational, careful thinking. We want to bring our intellect to, to bear in all that we face and see, especially sometimes in the church. Sometimes I've noticed at the church we have a tendency to check our hearts at the door and bring our minds forward. That seems to be a modern-day phenomenon. After all, what is it we say? If something's too good to be true, it usually isn't. And there's some truth in that statement, of course. But it's not just us modern-day folks who think like this. 2,000 years ago, it was similar. It was especially says, seen in the story of Thomas that we've heard just now. This one who is filled with doubt about whether or not Jesus is really resurrected or not. You see, Thomas wasn't there when the disciples saw Jesus on Easter evening. And so he says to his friends, unless I can put my finger in the, in the wound on his hand, unless I can rub my finger on the scar on his hand and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas is called Doubting Thomas. And it's kind of an unfair label for him. He's, he really shouldn't be called that. Uh, yes, he doubts. Yes, he, he wonders. But it almost sounds pejorative in our, in, our, in our culture. It sounds like we're putting him down or we're somehow saying that he doesn't have a very good faith or a strong faith. We ought to re call him instead reasonably skeptical Thomas. <laughs> I mean, after all, he thinks like us. He knows what you and I know. People don't come back from the dead. Have you seen someone who was dead who's now alive? It was just as unusual in, in Thomas's day as it is in ours. It's been unusual since the beginning of time, since the first humans began to form thoughts. It's, it's, it's a reasonably skeptical doubt to carry and to hold. And we want to be careful. The reason I'm bringing this up is because we want to be careful that we don't buttonhole people into, into certain simplistic ways of seeing them to recognize that every one of us is a complex set of emotions, thoughts, beliefs, doubts, wonders, worries, and anxieties. In my 40 years as a pastor, I've had many occasions to have pastoral encounters with folks in the church, and every single one, almost every single one, whatever there is on the surface is barely revelatory of what is existing beneath. And that host of emotions, the complexity that all of us face, we don't want to oversimplify Thomas. In fact, if you look at the record in John's gospel of him and the times that he appears, we see a remarkably complex person. In John 14, for example, Jesus says to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, and you know the way I'm going. Now, we know what he's talking about because we've read through the entire gospel of John, but it's happening as in, in their own real time with Thomas and the other disciples. It's a very cryptic saying. What is he talking about? We hear him talking about his death and resurrection and preparing a place for us after we die. It's a beautiful statement, read at funerals all the time. But in the moment, they don't understand. None of them say anything, though, except for Thomas. He's bold enough. He's brash enough to say out loud, Lord, how do we know the way where you're going. And Jesus takes that opportunity to explain to the disciples what it is he's saying. This is rational Thomas. This is Thomas who just wants to understand intellectually what it is Jesus is teaching. It's a beautiful moment in his life. Have you ever been in a group where the leader was saying some things and you couldn't quite follow, maybe you didn't quite understand? 
I, I remember when I was first elected to serve on the general board of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. That's one of our affiliate denominations here at, at First Community. I was in my very first board meeting. It was time for the financial report. Well, the executive uh, vice president of finances was going through the report, and it was very complex. Multi-pages, multi-citations. Multi he was using terms that I wasn't familiar with, and you could just feel the whole room. There was about 30 of us on the board back then. You could feel the whole room was, was tense and not quite understanding, but no one dared say anything, you know, until this woman two chairs down from me, she raised her hand and said, can you help me un understand, please? These terms you're using are unfamiliar. If you would define them and then help us go from A to B to C, because I'm not quite keeping up, would you do that for us, please? You could just feel the whole room breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, good, I'm not the only one, is what everyone was thinking. Well, I leaned forward and I said to her, as the report went on, I said, thank you for doing that. I had the exact same questions. And then she told me later, she said, my experience on boards is that men are afraid to admit they don't know what's going on and they don't answer the questions. I said, how did you know that about me? <laughs> That's Thomas though. He's rational Thomas. He's brash enough and willing enough, vulnerable enough to ask, these, to ask the question, Jesus, we, we don't know what you're talking about. Can you help us understand at a deeper level? There's another story in John 11 when Jesus says to his disciples, I've got to go to Judea. And the disciples say no. He'd, hold, he'd told them before that if he goes to Judea, his life will be in danger. They say, Lord, no, please don't go. We don't want you to be in danger. You, your life might be taken. Don't do it. It's Thomas who stands and says, let us go with him and let us die with him. It's one of the most courageous moments in the entire Bible. He's brave, Thomas. He's willing to go and stand with his Lord and Savior, and if he has to, give his life as well. It's a beautiful moment in the gospel. And it's a reminder to us of the complexity of Thomas's life. Just think how complex so many more of us are. We don't know that much about him, but we can see that he's brave, rational, reasonably skeptical, and other labels. That's why I wanted to just bring this point to bear here. We always want to see the other in, less than in more than simplistic terms. To never say, oh, he's a jerk, or she's weird. Or, as they say in the South, bless her heart. You know what that means, don't you? She's a jerk. We want to avoid that kind of thinking. Instead, recognize that there's almost always, almost always, in every person you encounter, more to them than you know. It's true for all of us. Well, Thomas is, is one who truly wants to understand, truly wants to see, truly wants to know, truly wants to believe, and he leads with his doubt, and there's nothing wrong with that. My friend Adam Hamilton is a pastor at the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City. A year ago, he did a sermon series, a series of sermons on, on doubt. To prepare for it, he surveyed his congregation. The first question was, have you ever had doubts about your religious faith? He got 1,500 replies. 95% said yes. 95% said yes. Now, of those yeses, some of them were occasionally they have doubts. Others were often they have doubts. But nonetheless, 95% have doubts about their faith, their religious faith. 5% said, no, I never doubt anything. Frankly, I doubt that. <laughs> 
Now, Jesus didn't have surveys that he could take. As far as we know, he didn't survey his disciples or survey the people that came to hear the Sermon on the Mount or any of the other teachings or preachings that, that he gave. But he seemed to know intuitively that we human beings, at least 95% of us, I would guess, struggle with doubt, with worry, with wonder, what's really true, what matters the most. Can I believe? Can I really believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead? Is it true? Jesus knows those questions are there somehow in the minds of his followers. Note how Jesus treats Thomas when Jesus finally appears before him. Especially note what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't belittle Thomas. He doesn't lecture him. He doesn't look down his nose at him. Instead, he opens his arms and he says, my friend, touch, see, believe. It's a powerful, poignant, beautiful moment. Doubt, you see, can be a tool for our faith. Doubt can help us understand at a deeper level. Doubt can open new ways of thinking and maybe even new possibilities for our lives, for whatever might be next for us in whatever stage we are in now. Doubt can help us, move us forward in faith. Doubt and faith in that way become partners. Many years ago when I was serving a church in Atlanta, a member of the congregation who was on our, our governing board, uh, a fine man, somebody I became very good friends with, called me in the, early in the morning. He said, I, I, know you, I know you usually don't take walk-ins, but I've got I've to come see you. I had a terrible nightmare last night, a really disturbing, woke me at 3 a.m. May I come and see you? Yes, please. Why don't you come by at 5 o'clock? He came on in. His name was Bryant. We talked for a moment about what's going on in, in his family, et cetera, and then, then we got right to it. He said, Glenn, I had a dream last night. I woke up in a cold sweat after it. In the dream, I saw my gravestone. My name was there etched on the top. Below that was the date of my birth, the date of my, my death. Below that was this phrase, he sold calendars. He said, Glenn, I, I woke up in a sweat. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't go back to sleep. Is that how my life is going to be characterized? Is that what I'm going to be remembered for, selling calendars? You see, he was a vice president an executive for a calendar-making company, a company that sold calendars not just in the United States but around the world. Do y'all remember what calendars are? We used to put those on our wall. You remember some of us had little daytimer books where we'd keep our calendars? I, I, he was very successful. Their company had done very, very well. But this dream, this dream just almost knocked him out of bed. Is that it? Is that the sum total of my life? I sold calendars? I'm beginning to doubt my purpose, he said. I'm beginning to doubt my faith. I'm filled with doubt. What do I do? I said, are you willing to sit here in your doubt for a moment? Yes, he replied. Wonder out loud then, what might this dream, this doubt-filled dream, be pointing you toward? What might this, this dream be saying to you about God and what God perhaps is calling you to. What does it say to you about God? He was quiet for a moment and he looked up and said, maybe God hates calendars? 
I said, no, we laughed. No, 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 and no. I wondered with him, maybe that dream, maybe that dream was a nudge of the spirit. I don't know that all dreams do that. Maybe it's a very, very tiny percentage that do, but maybe I said to him, maybe this was a nudge of the spirit asking you, he was 55 years old, asking you to look at the next phase of your life. You're moving into the third phase of your life. What is coming next? Maybe the spirit of God wants you to wonder about the possibilities that are there. He said, are you sure? I just feel like maybe my whole life was wasted. I said, oh, Brian, hang on a moment. I know how generous you are with the church. I know how generous you are with your time. I've seen you in leadership on the board and helped us wrestle with, with some issues and some concerns that we had about how to move the church forward. You're, you are an amazingly gifted human being. Never forget that. And I've also seen how generous you are in the community with your love, your care for your family, for your children, and for that little grandchild that was born a few weeks ago. Maybe it's your doubt that is inviting you in the spirit of God to consider the possibility for whatever might be next. That's what Thomas does for us on this day. He allows our doubts to become a part of our thinking, not in a fear-filled way, but in a way that allows us to wonder what new possibility is there. Brian McLaren has a marvelous book titled Faith After Doubt. I would highly recommend it to you. It's just a theologically powerful book. Early on, he tells a story of his friend Susan, who was a part of a church that she loved and cared for very much. But at one day, her young adult daughter, she was in her late teens or early 20s, came to her mother and said, I'm attracted to women. Well, the mother was concerned about this. She went back to her small group and she said, what, what do I do? Her small group in the church, what do I do with this? One of the persons literally said to her, pray the gay away. That's not a phrase I would use. It's an offensive phrase. But someone in her group said, pray the gay away. And she said, I can't do that. I love my daughter. I'm going to accept her as she is. Somebody else in the group said, if you do that, you're helping her to live a life of sin. Susan told her friend, Brian, in that moment, I had extreme doubts about my church. I had extreme doubt about their theology. I had extreme doubt about their closed-mindedness, their exclusiveness and I chose my daughter over my church, and I know it was the right thing to do. Years ago, I had a similar conversation with a mom who came to see me, and she said, my, my son is gay. I've been told by my friends who are in a different church that he's going to go to hell for being gay, and if that's true, I want you, Pastor Glenn, to tell me how I can tell God that I want to go to hell, because wherever my son is, that's where I want to be. That is a statement of faith. That is a statement of love and her willingness to go, go wherever she may need to be. This is what doubt does for us. It can open up new vistas and new ways of thinking. It can actually strengthen our faith. But sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, maybe some of you are as well, sometimes we take those doubt-filled questions, those anxious moments, and we push them down, and we, we hide over them, and we have an extra piece of chocolate cake, or maybe we watch another baseball game, and we just try to avoid it. Now, let me be clear. I like chocolate cake, and I love baseball, so just, I'm not disparaging those things, but sometimes when we compartmentalize in that way, we miss the opportunity that's being brought. When we, when we push them away, it can even actually create pain and maybe even suffering 
It may bubble out in strange ways. We may say angry words to someone we love, and we don't even know why we're saying angry words to them. It may come up in a variety of ways, maybe even affecting our, our, our physical bodies. It's always best to allow the doubt to emerge. Uh, speaking of, of suffering and pain, consider marriage. <laughs> it really wasn't meant to be funny, but I, I, I got a laugh at 9 o'clock, so I thought, we'll use this again. When, when a couple stands here on the center of our chancel and they face each other and they make a vow, what do they say? For better, for worse. They don't say for better, for worse, unless I'm filled with doubt about my love for you or your love for me or our love for each other or our ability to raise children or uh, build a home or, or anything else. No, 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 no. It's for better, for worse, period. It's a promise, a vow, a covenant between two souls uniting together in marriage. Let me say, though, just carefully, some marriages do need to end. I've seen those. I'm sure you have as well. It is always, always, always the church's responsibility to stand with a couple when they say, I do, and to stand with them when they say, I don't. You know, someone came to me about a year or so ago and said, I love the way you talk about your relationship with your wife in your, in your sermons and such, and I've been looking to, to have a relationship myself. I'd love to find someone to fall in love with and create a, a household with, and I just want you to know I, I'm, really, I'm really encouraged by you, uh, you and Julie. And I said, before you wish too much for that, I suggest you interview Julie first. <laughs> and then I said, trust me, we have our own worries. We have our own doubts. There's been moments when she was overwhelmed with doubt. There's been moments when I was overwhelmed with doubt. Maybe the one thing we try to do, at least we attempt to do, is to have those hard conversations whenever those moments come along, believing and trusting that we'll find a way through somehow. That's what Thomas is looking for. He's looking for a way through. What Thomas wants to know is, are those scars real? Are those wounds real? Is there dried, caked blood on your hands, on your back, on your side? Is it real? Because in Thomas's mind, if it's not real, if the scars are gone, if the wounds never existed, if he never really died, then the whole thing is a farce. It's a fake and it's a lie. Thomas is connecting the crucifixion with the resurrection. For Thomas, he has to see that Jesus is carrying those wounds just as we carry our wounds, carrying those wounds with him into the resurrection. Otherwise, it's just not real. Are there wounds on your hands? I have to see. It was Maya Angelou who said, before I write, I run the pen along my wounds in order to sharpen the point. The brilliant writer Annie Dillard said once, all of our wounds our worships. Five years ago, I attended a retreat for a group of pastors. There are about 30 of us from churches like First Community from around, around the country. We met in Washington, D.C. Our keynote speaker was my good friend, Reverend Dr. Terry Horde Owens. She's the first African-American female to lead a mainline denomination. Six years ago, when, when the vote came, I was proud to stand with the other 10,000 people in the room and vote yes for her becoming the general minister and president 
of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, one of our affiliate denominations. Well, a year later, she was invited to be our keynoter at this small retreat. After her lecture was over, she opened it up to Q&A. One of the pastors began with this almost long soliloquy about, about uh, the blood songs that we no longer sing. Do some of you remember the blood songs that we used to sing? Well, we never really sang them in First Community, but in the fundamentalist churches I grew up in, we, we sang them a lot. The theology behind those, this pastor was saying, was terrible, and we've thrown those songs out. Uh, the, the theology was that God had actually had to kill Jesus in order to forgive us. This is a brutally horrific theology. My wife is a court-appointed special advocate. They fight for the rights of kids in court. If some dad said he had to harm his child in order to make another child feel good, Julie's going to report on that clearly to a judge, and there will be consequences. That theology is nonsense. But then he went on to his, his question, whatever it was, and she said, I'll, I'll answer your question in a moment, but I want to go back to your comment about the blood songs. Before we throw all of it away, Yes, the bad theology needs to go. Let us pay attention to the wounds, the scars, the blood of Jesus. She said, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, when my ancestors were brought as slaves to this land, to this country, they saw the hope of freedom in someone named Jesus whose back was wounded like theirs, whose back was scarred like theirs, whose back was bloodied like theirs. They saw in him a hope of freedom, a hope for the whole world to finally move away from the violence of slavery. That before we run away from Jesus' blood, let's pay attention to the wounds, to the scars. Thomas just wants to know, is it true? Are there wounds in his hands? Is there dried blood on his back? Did he carry it with him forward in, into the resurrection? Thomas wants to know, is it true? The forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the dead, is it true? Are you wounded? Are your scars sometimes too much to carry? Is your heart breaking? Bring them to Jesus. Bring them to God. You won't be belittled. You won't be scolded. You won't be lectured. You'll simply be received by a God who opens God's arms in the name of love as wide as east is from west and says to you, to me, to the world, come and be embraced by love itself. Bring your wounds, bring your scars, bring your true self and feel the embrace of love.